0: coming up tonight, the, the beginning of the 11th, or is it tomorrow? No, wait a minute, Is it last night? I looked at calendar. I forgot, I, we weren't going to have a Bible study because it came right before I asked the Sabbath, that much I remember, <coughs> but begins the 11th month. Purim's in the 12th month, so we're drawing nearer that. The only other announcement is we have... The chorale is a thing for us, special music. This is taken from Isaiah 116 through 9, uh, composed by Ross Judson, entitled, It Won't Be Long Now. group that's one half singing to the other half. I, for one, appreciate all the effort that goes into learning a song and getting up and singing it. It's always an inspiration to hear good words sung. You've probably read, I'm sure you have, and have been acquainted somewhat with uh, a couple of phrases used in the Bible. The keys to the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, the key of David, and so on. Uh, I got to reflecting on that a few days ago. Just what does that mean? We read over it, we read it, and what comprises the key? What's it talking about? Let's discuss that and see if we can learn a little more, maybe, and understand it better. I'm going to start in Isaiah 22. This is a prophecy for the end time. Uh, what is recorded here and many places in Isaiah and the other prophets actually have their basis in either First uh, Chronicles and Second Chronicles and the Kings, because the story is related back there uh, as a matter of history, primarily. Uh, with prophetic overtones for that matter. But when the prophets like Isaiah here pick up on what was written in Chronicles and Kings, then it becomes definitely prophecy because these men were not just preaching of the past or just to the people who could hear them in that day, but they were called prophets. Uh, If they were just preaching and it only had to do with the day they were living in, then you might call them a preacher. But when it's billed as, and God calls them prophets, that means something for the future. Just what the word prophet conveys. So when we read this in Isaiah 22, it's the first place that that expression uh, key is used. Now, chapter 22 is the burden of the valley of vision. Now, which valley on earth would be a valley of vision? Uh, that would be the valley where Jerusalem is. That's where God set his capital. That's where he's coming back to. Uh, so, Jerusalem is typical of the coming kingdom of God. And this is a vision for or a burden of the valley of vision. A burden means a heavy weight, something that has to be carried that is not easy. So it's the burden of the valley of vision, and we'll see that it's talking about Jerusalem, uh, which was the capital of Judah, uh, as we go through. And it becomes quite clear that's the valley that it's talking about. It says, what ails you now? That you are wholly gone up to the housetops. Something going wrong, so you try to get in a place where you can see what's happening. And top of the house is one place people go, so they have a better vision. Down on the ground, you can't see as much by any means. Though you are full of stirs, that is, currents, stirring of gossip, talk, uh, people being stirred one direction or another by what they're hearing. A tumultuous city, that gives a sense of that. Everything was in tumult. Now you can bring that forward as a prophecy for today, and Israel as a whole, Western Europe primarily, and a few other countries in the U.S. and Canada, are becoming tumultuous. Uh, we're being stirred in different directions by different ones. So this fits us right now, today, in the areas of God's Israel. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. It's still in the talking stage here. Uh, it hasn't actually gone forward to death, but a lot of stirring and tumult which is exactly where we are today, and we're not very far from the dead laying in the streets. Uh, they're already beginning to, I guess you have to say, uh, people that are vaxxed are beginning to fall dead. And I found it very interesting. But I mentioned this last week that uh, Klaus Schwab said that those people going to the WEF Council in Davos, Switzerland, could not have... Uh, ...vaccinated pilots flying their planes. (laughs) I thought that was quite interesting. They're shoving the vaccination at us from every angle, but if you're going to carry me, you're not going to be vaccinated. So they know what they're doing. They're very aware of what the vaccination causes, and a lot of pilots are just dropping dead. Now... There's another reason I'm not sure I want to fly overseas, or even domestically anymore, because nearly all the pilots, probably all of them, have been vaccinated and given their boosters, so they're really up to snuff, and uh they're falling dead in the cockpits. Uh, a lot of them have been. So another good reason to stay in your car or stay home, I guess. Uh, Flying is such a convenient thing, or wherever it used to be. It's getting where it's difficult now. Uh, They have to patch you down and check everything you've got. And not only that, but very soon now they'll have a vaccine passport, and you won't be able to fly unless you've been vaccinated. That's in the works. So if you want to do any flying, uh, you better do it right away with the uh, risk of the pilot dying. Because pretty soon, unless you have the vaccination, you won't be able to fly. That's where they're headed. So it's causing a stir. It's causing tumult. People are beginning to question, why are athletes in the prime of life and in very, very good health and very, very good physical condition just dropping dead on the field? Why are musicians that are young and healthy and work out falling down on the stage dead. Uh, We are in a time of tumult, and it's growing worse by the day. So, as we read this, you can see the parallel right here among us. All your rulers are fled together. Uh, Most of our rulers now have a uh, cave dug somewhere, a barracks, uh, underground, or they have submarines so that they can get away from what's coming. They know it's coming. they planned it. they started instituting it. And they're going to run. Other scriptures say if they go to the heavens or they go to the sea, he'll find them. They're not getting away. But that's what is beginning to happen. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in you are bound together, which have fled from far. So, uh, there are people who are going to be looking for them to kill them. And we have other scriptures that indicate some of our leaders will be killed, uh, assassinated. Therefore said I, this is Isaiah speaking, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. In other words, I'm going to cry, I'm going to shed some tears. Turn your head so you don't have to witness this. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. He says, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Don't even try to comfort me. Uh, I know it. Now we're going to see an example in the New Testament of someone who knew something was coming, had heard it, had been told it, and then said, no, it won't be. Now that was it'll be quite an interesting example when we get to it and look at the whole story there. But Isaiah said, It is coming. Don't even try to comfort me, just look away from my tears. Uh he was upset about it, didn't like it, any more than you and I like it. it even says in Jeremiah there, fifty fifty one, that if we could we would save our nation, but we can't. There's not a thing we can do. God has decreed this is going to happen. It's coming. It can't be stopped. Even He will not stop it. Some say in their articles on the internet that if we just all turn to God. But God has already said, you won't do it. So crying for that is going to be wasted breath. Because this nation will not repent. And God said, don't even bring it to me. Don't even pray for this people because I have made the judgment that they're going to die, and that's it. So don't waste your time and trouble praying for this country. It won't do a bit of good, and in fact, it will be a disobedience to God to do so, since he said don't. Sometimes we don't look at it that way. God says, well, don't bother, and we say, well, I want to pray for my country anyway. No, you're not doing what God said if you do. The judgment has already been made. I think it was made in the fall of 2017 when the shadow passed over and God said, the dead are going to be. And it's coming. It started coming. And it's getting worse by the day. I will weep bitterly. Don't comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision. So Isaiah was centered in Jerusalem, and there's where he worked with King Hezekiah. Uh, So the valley of vision then is within Israel and is in our country today breaking down the walls, and of crying to the mountains. And Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men, and horsemen, and Keir uncovered the shield. So destruction is coming, and that's the context of this thing about the kingdom and the keys and so on when we get down to it in this chapter. But you need to understand the context of what it's talking about in order to grasp what he means, because To me, I would read over this chapter, the last half of it, and uh, not quite get what it's talking about. I think I understand it better having gone over it two or three times recently. And it shall come to pass that the choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. So, the valleys, the countryside will be full of chariots. And they'll be gathered at the gates of the cities as well. So rural, urban, doesn't matter. It's coming to everybody. People who think they can flee to the mountains and eat deer are going to be sadly disillusioned. Because there's only so many deer and there'll be a lot of people. And they won't last long. They won't do you any good. Now, they'll attack the cities first. That's where it starts. But they will spread out and they will... Devastate the entire country. You have seen also the breaches of the city of David that they are many, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. Now he's leading up the talking to an individual here, uh, and he'll mention, he'll say it in a in a little bit here. But things were done <coughs> that should not have been done. For God to call to this kind of destruction, there has been a lot of sin, there's been a lot of disobedience, not looking to God, because those are the times and the people that He says, always in prophecy, will be punished. It's always disobedience that gets God's wrath up and causes Him to punish a people. So He prefaces what He has to say here by saying that destruction is coming. And it wouldn't be coming if it weren't for disobedience. So what he's talking here about here as we go on down is, dis- is disobedience of various kinds. Uh, so the person he's talking to here sees the breaches, the problems, uh, like holes in the wall. There are problems that will allow them to be taken and snared. You've gathered together the waters of the lower pool, and you have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall. Now, God often mentions that we are to turn to him for our protection. If we don't turn to him and use our own devices, we'll be in trouble. He says, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, makes statements of that kind Fairly frequently, Uh, going to battle and finding our own solutions is not the answer. It won't answer it. It won't keep you from getting killed. Only God's protection will do that. That's the only one to look to. But here he numbered the houses as David numbered uh, the men of battle, and God punished him for that. He says, do you not rely on me, don't rely on how many chariots and horses and archers you have. But David numbered the people anyway and got in trouble. Here, uh, they numbered the houses, and they broke the houses down and used materials to fortify the wall. In other words, they took things into their own hands and said, well, we'll do it this way. There are holes in the wall, we'll use the houses to patch the holes. So they didn't turn to God. They turned to their own devices. He says, You made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you've not looked to the maker thereof, neither had respect to him that fashioned it long ago. So they had a lower and an upper pool, and they did something there to rearrange things and join them together. And God says, They were made the way they were, For a reason and a purpose that God was behind the building of Jerusalem through Solomon with the temple and the palace and all those things God had caused to be done in a certain way. And the pools, obviously, then, were arranged in a certain way because God gave very detailed instructions, did he not, on how everything was to be and then... Solomon built it just that way. So here he's talking to somebody and saying, You didn't leave it the way I made it. You changed it to suit your own purposes. That's a bad idea any time you're dealing with God and what he may have built. You start changing it and you're in trouble. A la Jodakash and others. And in that day did the eternal God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. When you started messing with the things I caused to be built a certain way, you got yourselves in trouble. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. So you were careless and carefree, you changed and destroyed what I had made, shaped it the way you wanted it, and then you thought everything was going to be just fine and you could eat and drink and, hey, life's only so long, let's wind it up because we're going to die anyway. So what it shows is careless living. And it was revealed in my ears by the Lord of hosts to Isaiah, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, says the eternal God of hosts. So the things they had done and their careless living were going to cause them to die, and God said, It's inevitable, it's going to happen. Thus says the eternal God of hosts, Go! Get you to this treasurer, even to Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What have you here? Isaiah is going to question Shebna. Now, Shebna was one of three uh, of the officials in Hezekiah, the king's uh, palace, and uh, they obviously weren't doing what they should be doing. The Assyrian was coming. And they talked with the Assyrian because Hezekiah sent them and then Hezekiah went to God and it was kind of back and forth there about what would happen and God finally killed what was 145,000 Assyrians in one night because Hezekiah was looking to God. Now, Shebna was not. Let's, let's see a little bit of, he's already said some of the things Shebna was doing. He was looking to man and houses of build the walls so they couldn't come in, and not carefully following God, but just living normal, eternal human life. Uh, so it was iniquitous. Thus says the eternal God, get to Shebna which is over the house, and tell him, what have you here? What you've been doing? What's going on? And whom have you here? Who you got with you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? That you have viewed you out a sepulcher here, as he that used him out a sepulcher on high, and that graves an habitation for himself in a rock. Shebna had a great deal of ego and vanity. He was not a humble man. And when he did the king's affairs, he didn't do them correctly. So he had such a high and exalted vision of himself that he didn't want to be buried like a common man. He went up on a hill and made a huge sepulcher out of probably granite or whatever was handy. And uh, he wanted a monument to himself when he was buried. Death is kind of humbling, isn't it? That's pretty much the end of pride and vanity is starting to rot. But he wanted to rot in magnificence because he deserved that, he thought. Behold, the Eternal will carry you away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover you. He wouldn't be in this massive vault that he had made. He was going to get covered up. In other words, a hole in the ground and the dirt thrown in. So you've you've got great visions of yourself, but uh uh-uh, buddy, isn't going to happen that way. And he will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. There shall you die, and there the chariots of your glory shall be the shame of your Lord's house. Now, he was in a very, very high position. He had fancy chariots in Jerusalem. He was given great authority by the king. He was apparently in charge of the treasury, among other things, as the commentaries say, and very, very high in the government. But he says, you're not going to have those nice chariots in a new country. You'll be tossed about as a large ball. The commentaries say, maybe like stones in a sling and slung out. Uh, something around that you either play with or use for, or war, uh, a ball, just bounced around. You see kids playing with balls and they, they throw them at each other and they try to catch them and they, they kind of batter that ball around all over the place when they're kicking it, hitting it, uh, and so on. So he says, you're gonna be bounced around like a ball and then killed and covered. And I will drive you from your station, and from your state shall he pull you down. So he's going to lose all of his authority, all of his uh, reputation, everything that he was. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, Eliakim was one of the three that were sending messages back and forth between Hezekiah and and the Assyrian, but Eliasim was a different kind of cat. He was faithful, he was true, he didn't have an oversized head. Whatever authority was given to him, he used properly. That will be pointed out here. (coughs) Uh, Eliasim means the God of raising, or God is setting up. An interesting term, because Eliakim was being raised up by God to the office that Shebna had held and misused, and God was going to raise him up and set him up in a high position. And I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your girdle, speaking of Shebna, and I will commit your government into his hands. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. What does the father do? He looks over, he takes care of, he feeds, he provides for those under his authority. And he says, that's what you will be, is a provider and a caretaker for Jerusalem. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder speaking here then again of Eliakim. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. This is the first time this phrase is used in the Bible, and it is used hereafter only in the New Testament, which we'll examine. But we need to go back here to begin to understand what this meant. What is the key for? you got a key in your house, you carry it, But it's there to keep people from entering in who don't belong there. But you have the key and you can open that door and you can shut that door and you can lock it. So here he was giving Eliakim authority to come and go in important places where others were not allowed to go. The key is very, very important and it is to us today for security. Uh, we have keys to our cars, keys to our purses, keys to our houses, keys to our mailbox, maybe. Uh, if You've got a post office box. Uh, some people even have locked boxes out in the rural areas that they have to open with a key or a combination. So a key indicates security. It indicates only those authorized can go there. So, he's giving a great deal of authority to Eliakim. And he tells him he'll give him the key of the house of David. I'll lay that on his shoulder. And he can open and shut. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Now, nails... ...were used when they built houses back then, and palaces, big, strong, heavy nails uh, that they hung their valuables on. You might have a coat rack inside your house, a place to hang something that's important you're going to need when you go back out. And they didn't have, generally, shelves or closets like we do, maybe. But in palaces, they even hung armor on those nails... Uh, It was just something that they worked in. If if it were adobe, while the the bricks were still fairly soft, they'd drive them in, and there they'd be. So you hung your valuables there. So he said he'll be fastened as a nail in a sure place. They were put in far enough that they wouldn't just droop and fall out uh, with a little bit of weight on them, but they would be strong. So a nail in a sure place was something that was used to put valuables. So he says, I'm going to make Eliakim that valuable. I can hang authority on him. I can hang office on him, responsibility, everything that's important to a government, because he's describing a government up here, he of the house of David, the kingdom of David. He was going to make him strong for that. Now, there are overtones here in the prophecy for some beings and individuals in the New Testament. We'll get to that later. But here we begin to understand what this means. Now, I might give you some hints here. What was the key of the kingdom of David? What was the key to David's success as a a person in authority? Now, he did some things he shouldn't have done, and those were not the key to his success. Some of those he got punished for. But when he was being successful, what made him successful? Read through the Psalms. You'll see a lot of phrases about, Oh, how love I thy law, it is ever with me. Thy commands make me wiser than my unfriendly foes. Over and over and over again, I won't give you 40 of them, they're more than that. Oh, how love I thy law, it is ever with me, some just coming to mind. He talked a great deal about the law of God. And we will see that that was the key to the success that David had in his reign, was when he kept the laws of God, and when he departed from them, things got bad. Just like he's saying here, Israel, you've departed from my laws and things have gotten bad and you're going to die. And I'm going to take it away from that vain culprit, Shebna, and I'm going to give it to Eliakim, who is a faithful servant. I'll give him the authority that you have. So it wasn't just items of clothing or war that were hung on nails. Uh, it was also authority. It was also position and power that this symbolizes. And he'll be able to open and shut. Now there is authority. If You're given the key, you can open and shut the door. You can open and shut whatever needs you need access to. This is pretty high authority being given to Eliakim, whom I think we'll see is a type of Christ. Who has the keys of the kingdom of God other than Christ? Very few people were given that. So this Eliakim was a faithful servant, as is Christ, and his shoulder will contain all the government and rule throughout the entire millennium. So here we're seeing a prophecy of Christ himself and a couple other people, as we'll see, who obeyed Christ. They shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, and he was a descendant of David, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups even to all the vessels of flagons. So there were small articles that were hung on nails. I have some pegs in my house that I got cups hanging on. So it was the little stuff, and then the flagons were wine vessels or wine bags made out of a whole sheepskin. So they were quite a bit bigger, and if they're full of wine, they're quite a bit heavier and more important than the little cups. They can use the cup to pour wine in, but it's just a much, much smaller vessel of less importance. I mean, if you had to, you could drink out of the wine skin, or you could use a small thing like a cup. So what he's referring to really is those who came from his father's house, whether they be small, the peasants, or whether they be large, the more important ones, the more successful ones, all would come under his authority. And we find with Christ that large and small, everyone will come under his authority. So you see the type here. In that day, says the Eternal of Hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Eternal has spoken of, has spoken it. So, whatever was hanging on the nail with Shebna would be cut off. All of his authority, all of his power, even his sepulcher, he would be cut off from. So God says, I'm going to take the burden off of Shebna, the authority, and put it on Eliakim. And he's going to do the same with Satan. He has authority right now as the prince of the power of the air and the current ruler of this world. And you see what kind of a mess it's in. Not doing the things God says. Not leaving it as God made it, but changing it very rapidly now. He's using the WEF and those knotheads in there. Among others, to try to change everything that God made. Even turning us into robots and transhumanism, so we're kind of part human and part robot. Uh, and he's trying to change the climate. He's trying to change everything. And not leave it the way God made it. And God is going to send a fit man soon to bind Satan and put him in confinement so he can't do this anymore. So we're right at this point where it's about to happen. It isn't long now until that song is fulfilled, Satan is bound and put away, and Christ takes over the leadership of the world, and everything will be at peace. It'll be quite a contrast between over 90% of the people on earth actually being killed at God's behest and Satan's, and then those who are left to live in peace. Those who are left to live in peace will do what? They will obey God instead of disobey. All we see today is a world that is totally disobedient to God and a world of absolute confusion, but that will change. Now, let's go to Matthew 16. We'll see the next incidents of the keys of the kingdom. This is quite interesting to me here. If you get the whole context of what is being said, up in chapter verse twelve, he said, "Beware of the leaven of the leaven of bread." Don't beware of it, but beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he went to Caesarea, and some said, "Are you John the Baptist?" Some said Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" And Simon Peter answered. It wasn't the scribes and Pharisees here; they didn't want to answer these questions. This question, so Peter answered it. He said, "You're the Christ, <laughs> the Son of the Living God." And Jesus answered. And said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Now this indicates that God was working with Peter. Uh, Peter would be converted at some point, as were the other disciples. But Peter came up here with the right answer, and Christ said, but that answer came from God. Now, that's important. So he says, you'll, you'll be blessed for that. And then he added something, which Catholics and others have used to say that they're the ones that the keys have been given to. But he does say to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. Now, first, in explanation. He uses two different Greek words here. When he said, you were Peter, he used the term Petra, which was a small rock. Or the other way around. The other words, Petros, I might have forgotten. Uh, and upon this rock, he uses the other word. Petra and Petros. One is a small rock, one is a large rock. So it says, you're Peter, you're a small rock, but I'm going to build my church on the large rock, which was himself. And Ephesians 2.20 tells us that he is the chief cornerstone upon which the church is built. So he's the large rock. So the church is built on Christ. It's not built on Peter. It's not built on the Pope. Not built on Martin Luther, not built on anybody but Christ. I'll build my church on me, but you're a small rock. You're in the church, but you're not as big a rock as I am. That's the comparison he's making. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we read Eliakim was given great authority and could open and close. He had the keys. He key of the house of David was the law. That was the key that made things work. And we will see that here in a little bit to be true of the New Testament as well. Now, this gets perverted terribly by various ones who say they are in charge and they can make whatever rules they want to make. In fact, the Pope calls himself the vicar of Christ, which means in the place of Christ. So he has assumed to be Above Christ. And the devil has assumed to be above Christ. So when Satan started his church through Simon Magus in Acts 8, uh, it became the Catholic or universal church. They named it universal saying it would be everywhere it would be the church of God. But Simon Magus was told by Peter to go to hell with his money in no uncertain terms. But this was within a hundred years after the New New Testament church began to die out and the Catholic church became the main one. Was God really giving him the keys of the kingdom and saying whatever you lock or unlock will be something that God will back? Was he really saying, you can do anything you want, and I will respect it, and it'll be the law. It'll be what everybody lives by. Does that sound like the God who rules the universe, and he tells the man down here on the earth, who isn't really even converted yet, I'm going to give you power, and you can do anything you want, and I'll okay it. Can you imagine God doing that with any man? Well, I'll prove to you that that wasn't the case. Uh, this has been translated very poorly. I have a book called 27 Translations of the Bible, and on every verse in the Bible, it will give you the different translations that these 27 uh, different translators have used. In some cases, there's no change. Uh, all of them say what King James said is fine. In some cases, there are two or three who see in the Greek or the Hebrew uh, a different wording, a better meaning, in other words, of the translation. When you translate, let's say, from Spanish to English, or from English to Spanish, you lose a lot. Uh, because things mean different than you think. And so they use, let's say, in Spanish, they use a certain type of sentence structure which is foreign to English and vice versa. And the words sometimes are very difficult to translate. Some are pretty easy. My name, for instance, I've not found anybody who speaks Spanish who can give a translation for my name. They they don't they can barely say Darrow and they don't know what it means in Spanish. There's no equivalent. So I say just call me Juan. <laughs> You call me John, whatever, I don't care. Let's, uh, let's use names we can use that work. And it was the same way when they were translating Greek or Hebrew into English or any other language. There are some words that just don't work, so what they do is they study the Greek and figure out which words best describe what the Hebrew was saying in Greek. So, there's a lot of room for saying it better, or using better words to describe it. And uh, somebody who's really good in English and Spanish both can do a better job of translating than someone who isn't. And that's true of these scholars. Some could translate it better than others and come up with a better meaning. Now, the Williams translation, for instance, translates this verse this way. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth had better well be what was bound in heaven. <laughs> in other words, you don't vary from this, and whatsoever you shall lose had be had better be that which is already loose in heaven. In other words, God is still in charge, and any decisions you make had better be based upon the word of God and come up with the same conclusion that God had. Because if you're in con you're contrary to God, I'm not going to honor it. Now this was translated by differently by, I don't know, fifteen or sixteen of the different Uh, translations from Greek to English because there was a great deal of doubt about what the particular words meant and how they should be translated. One of those cases. Some are easy, some are difficult. But he was telling Peter if you have this authority, you better do it my way. And that's what it was with Shebna and Eliakim, right? You're not doing it Shebna, the way I said, and you're changing everything that I made the way I made it and told Solomon to do it. You're messing it all up. You're out of here. You're going to die in a forest country after being tossed like a ball, and he was. Then he gave it to Eliachim, who was faithful in doing it the way the king and God wanted it done. So, when he comes to the next place that he uses this in the Bible, it's with Peter. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees had been running things and had been an authority, the priesthood and so on, down through the centuries. But just above this, he said, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are in, are in the position that Shebna was in. They've been given authority, but they would screwed it all up. So he says, beware of what they're teaching. It doesn't go along with what I teach and what I believe and what the Father in heaven is all about. And Christ divorced the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 23. So he's saying, I'm taking the authority away from the Pharisees and Sadducees that they've been given and abused. Now I'm going to put it on Peter, and he's telling him, you'd better not abuse it. You'd better do it the way it is in heaven or else. Anything you shut or open, whatever decision, it better be according to the Bible, according to God's law. That's what he's laying on him. And I'm going to prove to you that that's the correct sense of this here in just a moment. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, he's making a transition in government from the Pharisees and Sadducees to the church. And he told them at that point, don't even tell them I'm Jesus. Kim, if you will. I'm here to represent my Father and do what he says, not what I want or what you may want, but what the Father says. It's pure and simple what he's conveying. Uh, then he began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get you behind me, Satan. Now that sounds pretty severe, when all Peter was trying to do was protect Christ and say, this can't happen to you. I, I won't let this happen. I'll get me a sword and I'll cut off his head. Oh, just got the ear, sorry. Peter wasn't going to allow this. So Peter was trying to bind something on earth that was not bound in heaven. He was trying to unbind what had been said. You go through the Old Testament scriptures and you find many, Psalm 22 and 3, Isaiah 52, different ones, or 53 it is, that talk about Christ having to die, and that he would die, and how he would die, and how he would be beaten to a pulp there in Isaiah 53, and on and on it goes. So, what Peter was saying was in opposition to what the prophets had said. And Christ was not going to put up with that. He said, it's bound in heaven that I have to go to Jerusalem. and These things are going to happen. And then Peter says, no, I'll take care of it. It won't happen. So he's in opposition to God. And Christ said, get behind me Satan!" Because the very first thing after he told him, I'm going to give you authority, don't you misuse it, Peter immediately misuses it. First thing he does, next conversation that came up, he abused it and went against scripture which had been written saying that it would happen. So Christ gave him a pretty strong lesson here. Right away. Now, Peter, you're Colonel. I'm going to build a church on myself and you're going to be a major Part of it, I'm going to give you great authority to open and shut and make decisions for the church, in other words. But they had better be according to Scripture. And when the first thing out of his mouth was contrary to Scripture, it's get behind me, Satan. You're not going to pervert Scripture. You've got to live by it. You've got to make all your judgments by it. What Peter should have said, oh, I have read the Psalms and I've read Isaiah 53 and I know you're going to have to go through this because that's what the prophet said. I'm sorry. I'll be at your side. I won't forsake you. Uh So I know it's going to happen. I'll pray for you. I'll support you. I'll help you. That should have been his answer. But no, he said, that's not going to happen. So he was using his vanity and his ego to think he could stop it. Like not No, I mean like Chabnick. I'll use my authority to do what I want. Uh-uh. You savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He laid it out very clearly to him. God said this is going to happen. It's going to happen. But you're thinking like a man. How are you going to make decisions for the church when you're thinking like a man? Then said Jesus to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his stake and follow me. What I teach, what I say, follow me in it. Deny your own carnal reactions. So what do the churches do today? Catholics, Protestants, all of them. Most of them support abortion. Now they're nearly all supporting lesbianism and homosexuality and all those things. They're supporting things that are absolutely contrary to God. And some of them will tell you, I have the authority to do that. Because I said he'd give me all this power, and whatever I decide, is decided in heaven. Well, what about those scriptures in Romans 1 that say he's totally against any kind of sexual perversion? All of it. What about those that say in the Old Testament and the law, you shall not lie with another man, and so on and so forth. That's what God says. But the church say saying, we have power and authority, just do what we say. Don't pay any attention to the Bible. It doesn't know what it's talking about. Now, they're supposed to have a church based on Christianity and Christ and His Word, and yet what they're saying is totally contrary to it just like Peter, and just like Shepherd. So he, he has a pretty strong answer here for Peter. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I am the key here, he says. And you better follow me and do what I say, or you're going to lose your life eternally. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So I think Christ shows right here with an object lesson that Peter had better follow the Scripture. Whatever he binds, whatever he loses, is based on the Scripture. Now, he was giving him authority. A lot of things come up in human life that need to have a decision made, whether it's correct or incorrect, whether you should do it or not. Okay, let's have homosexuality. It's one of the big ones on the table right now, being pushed so hard by the world. Now, shall we use human reason and say, well, better go along with these people. They might come kill us. Or shall we get open the Word of God and see what God says and make a judgment based on it? Now, I have, in my experience in the ministry over all the years, had to counsel people who were perverted sexually that way. Men and women. What did I tell them? Well, it's okay. I know you were born that way. You can't change it. Uh, Pick a gender is the latest one. Just decide what you want to be and you can be it. It's it's okay. It's natural. It's it's just the way you were born. Now, is God going to back that up? Now, what did I counsel him? I told them, let's go to Romans 1 and see what God says about it. Let's go back to the Old Testament law and see what God says about it. And once we read that, then I would say, Those, that is the way God looks at it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you were that way when you were big enough to know anything, or whether you developed it later, or whatever. It is wrong. It is illegal. It is perverted. And therefore, you have got to change. God will not allow homosexuals in the kingdom of God. Some went away sorrowing. Some made an effort to change. That's one of the hardest things there is to change. Because it's all full of your emotions. It's full of your feelings. You look... And a woman and does nothing for you. You look at a man and you get all excited. How do you change that? It's totally natural, unnatural, totally perverted, upside down, and wrong. And God will judge it. So, he says if we're to enter the kingdom of God, what do we need to do? Repent. Change. Be different. Get in line with the law of God. Some things are harder to change than others. Clean and unclean meats? Fairly easy to change that one. Once you can see it it in the scriptures, it's fairly easy to change that. Because you have substitutes. You got beef, you got sheep, you got different things you can eat, and you don't have to eat pigs. So that's reasonably easy. Smoking can be kind of tough, but he does say to honor and respect our bodies and take care of them. And we know good and well that smoking is bad for them. Is not a, Thus saith the Lord in here, Thou shalt not smoke camels and marlboros. But there is in here that we are to respect and take care of the body that God gave us and not do things that harm it. And that harms it. There are a lot of things that harm it. You could even put a lot of things that are in this grocery store over here on that list that are just as bad as smoking. Soda pop. hello. of or non-sugars which are even more dangerous than sugar and all kinds of um, concocted chemical flavors and on and on it goes. We need to examine a lot of things that we might allow ourselves to do that are harmful to our bodies that we ought to cut out because of that principle. Coca-Cola and Pepsi are not mentioned in the Scripture except that they are things that harm the body and therefore are not good for us to take in. That's just the first one I thought of. You can go down the grocery store list over there and if you really think about it, there's very little in there worth eating. We just have to do the best we can. Uh, I pick out one or two or three things, but there's a hundred, there's a thousand. We might ought to consider whether, should I buy that and take it home and put it in my body? What's it going to do to my heart, my lungs, my brain, my arteries, on and on? Will it help my health or harm my health? We have to make those decisions. And I'm not going to give you a do-not-touch list. That's not my job. My job is to tell you to get in line with this word, which says, take care of your body. Then you have to become wise... In what you determine is good for it and not good for it. God expects us to learn wisdom. So it's up to every one of us, when we go in the grocery store, or the pot store, or wherever we go, to determine whether what we are thinking about doing would help our bodies or not. I can think of another one real quick. Cocaine. A lot of people snort cocaine to make the brain work better. And then it quits working and they have to have another snort. The people who are snorting cocaine <clears throat> have their health go downhill. So a godly decision on cocaine will be that harms my body and therefore God says don't do it because he wants me to take care of my body. A lot of scriptures about that. So you have to make those decisions. God wants you to learn wisdom. I mentioned two or three of the things that are some of the worst. But you have decisions to make. What should I take in? Is this helping me with my health or is it not? Or is it just carnal human nature wanting to have what feels good, tastes good, as opposed to what is good? And God will judge us based on the kind of decisions we make about all these things. So no, we don't have a a list. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go down to the grocery store and start reading all the labels. This is on the good list. This is on the bad list. That's what Joseph Smith and the Mormons did. You can't have soda pop. Oh, you can, can have soda pop, but not coffee. They didn't have soda pop in the days when Joseph Smith lived, so he couldn't make a decision on that one, could he? But the later Mormon rulers ruled that since Joe said coffee was out, they can't have coffee, but the modern leaders weren't Joe, and they said pop's okay. And alcohol they're not to drink, because Joe said no. But you can have these other things instead. Well, I know... The Joseph Smith was guided and led by a demon named Moroni. Now, how do I know that? Because he taught him to teach Sunday. He taught him a lot of things that are contrary to Scripture. And a, a holy angel would not teach you things contrary to Scripture. And Peter had better not teach you things contrary to Scripture. His decisions had better be made on this word. Now, he said he'd give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'll quote you a, a verse. Luke 16, 16, The law and the prophets were till John. Since then, the kingdom of God is preached. So, you didn't have the kingdom of God on the table in the Old Testament. It only became there when John the Baptist started teaching it, and Christ followed it up. But tie that together with Matthew 22, verses 36 6 through 40. We're close. I'm going to go back there and read that one. I'm about out of time. Uh, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything about the kingdom of God, everything that was written in the law and the various laws, everything that the prophets wrote, and there's a lot of it, There's two commandments that all this hangs on. Love God and love your neighbor. Those two. So, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Those two. And everything that hangs on them. So, that means the whole Bible, because everything that's written in here has to do with those two. That's what it's all about. So, what he was really telling Peter is, you better do the first and second commandment, and everything else that hang on them. That's what you make your judgments and decisions on. So he wasn't telling Peter, you can do anything you want. That'd be like the Protestants today. That's Satan's doctrine. All you have to do is say you love Jesus, and anything else you do is fine. Because you're going to be in the kingdom of God, so... You can lie, steal, cheat, murder, commit adultery, do all these things. You're still going to be in the kingdom of God. Well, why do they teach morality then if it doesn't matter? I knew one of our ministers years ago, the guy says, well, the law's done away with. Well, what about the one about adultery? Oh, that's done away with. So the preacher says, well, I'm going to take your wife to dinner tomorrow night. You know, if the law's done away with, what's the problem? Why would you object? Shut him right up. <laughs> well, I don't know for sure what the reaction was. It may have been, I'll kill you if you do. But the point is, based on their logic and their doctrine, anything you do is okay. If the law's done away with and I decide I want to, I'll just shoot you. That, that fixes it. I think it's quite obvious that that's not true. Those laws still exist. So anyway, being short of time here, let's go to, uh, well, Luke eleven fifty two says that the, the scribes took away the key of knowledge. So the scribes are doing just the opposite of what Christ is saying here. They took away the keys of proper living, of right knowledge, (coughs) screwed it up, twisted it, made it where it was of none effect, and then Christ divorced them. He said, I'm giving it to Peter and the church. And Peter, you and the church better go by true knowledge and my word, not that which the scribes and Pharisees did, because they had the keys. They had the law. But they twisted it. Let's go to Revelation 3 and get the last one. We've read this one many times in the church where he says to the Philadelphia church that they would have the keys, key of David. What does this really mean? Now you read about Sardis at the beginning of chapter 3 and it says that uh, Sardis died and was getting away from the things that had been taught. What did the Tataches do? They took the things that God had revealed to Herbert Armstrong and took them right back to Protestantism, twisted it like the Pharisees and Sadducees had. So it no longer was the church of God, it simply died. And we've been dealing with the bodies and the crippled and the maimed and so on ever since. So he said, strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die false doctrine, being promulgated, getting away from the truth. And he hasn't found your works perfect before God. So he says, Remember how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Some did. (coughs) Some followed the Pagoshes right back into pagan Protestantism. Others held fast to the things they had been taught. And he says, There'll be a few names still alive in Sardis, although most have died. Tells them to overcome what sin? What is sin? Breaking of the first, or fifth, breaking of the first and second commandments: love God and love your neighbor. And everything else in the Bible hangs on that. Then to the angel of the church in Philadelphia (laughs) writes, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts. Now that is Christ. (laughs) Eliach, then, was a type of Christ who could open and shut only by the things written in the book and the things that God had made, and Shebna was trying to get away from what God even physically had done with the pools in the city of Jerusalem. No, nah, not allowed. But here at the very end time, when worldwide has died, Sardis, that puts it now, we've been through the death of Sardis, and then you have Laodicea afterward, it says they were still self-righteous, and lukewarm, and so on, and had to repent and overcome, or else. So then you have Philadelphia that God put between Sardis and Laodicea because the same people are involved here at the end time. He says those that were called here at the end would not die, this generation will not die out in Matthew 24 until these things had been accomplished. So, he's dealing with people from Sardis, Worldwide Church of God, and Laodicea, which is all the spewed out people that there are, including us, because we were spewed. But Philadelphia has to be put between those two because it's the same people, except that the ones in Philadelphia are the ones who've repented out of Sardis and out of Philadelphia, so they form it. You don't have anybody else to work with except those who had been called. And most of them would fall away. Ninety percent and only ten percent would become true Philadelphians. But he said Christ has the key of David, which is the law. We saw some scriptures and David wrote all the time about the law of God, and that's what made him successful. Uh, Same with Eliakim, same with Christ telling Peter, you keep the law and all your decisions better be based on my law that I have already set up. None of your own carnal reasoning. I am going to Jerusalem to die. Get behind me, Satan. Pretty clear. So he says, Christ is involved with Philadelphia. He has the key. That's the law. He opens and shuts and no man opens I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. So he said, I open and I shut, and I'm going to open one for you, and nobody can shut it. Now you read about the true witnesses, and the beast's power is going to try to shut them up. And they won't be able to until Christ actually shuts it, and they kill them three and a half days before the resurrection. So the door is open through that whole time and nobody can shut it and then Christ shuts it and lets them kill those two and three and a half days later they're resurrected. But what's this based on? Or you have a little strength. Ten uh, percent isn't much out of what was and right now there's no strength. There's no way to do anything. Everybody just sitting kind of twiddling their thumbs and some are trying to make booklets and broadcasts, and it's going nowhere, getting nothing done. Little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name or my authority. Kept his word, that's this book. That's what Christ is telling Peter. You better follow the law and the prophets. Do what's in this book. And not denying his name, his name will become Jesus Christ, it will become Emmanuel soon, and nearly all of them are going to deny that. Well, you shouldn't be using that name. Well, it just says there in Matthew that they will use it later. says it. Why are you denying it? But it's more not just his name, but his authority. That's what Peter was denying. You said it's going to happen, but I say it's not. Now, who's in charge here? (laughs) That's basically what Peter was saying. But I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, that's all other religions, which say they are Jews, spiritually okay, and they're not, but do lie. I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. You've kept the word of my patience. You've endured. You've been patient. You've waited. We've been waiting over 30 years now. Thirty-five have to be patient. I also will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Keep them out of the tribulation and the place of safety, because they have kept his word and not denied his name. Those are keys. Behold, I come quickly Quickly. Hold that fast which you have that no man take your crown. Don't let the truth get away from you. Don't let the teachings from this book get away from you. And in fact, get your head in it and learn more. Because he said at the end, Elijah would have to restore all things. That means that they weren't all restored. They have to be learned and see what's in the book and change according to it. Not according to what we were taught in the Protestants. Herbert Armstrong learned a lot of things that are in here and changed it and got it right. are other things he never came across discovered or realized needed to be done. But they're in here. We've been, as we find them, we're changing them and getting in line with this book. Purim, Feast of Dedication, Fast of the Month, uh, Keeping Passover Right, on and on it goes uh, to get it straightened out. So, That's what we're trying to do, is get in line with this book. And he who holds the keys, if we are part of Philadelphia, will open a door before us that no man can shut. So, we need to live up to what he says to Philadelphia here, and do what he told Laodicea, that is, repent and change. And then he says, I'll protect you. And you'll be a pillar in the temple, be in the city of my God, a new Jerusalem. That means you'll be one of the 144,000, because those comprise the new Jerusalem. Important promises made here. So, I hope we understand a little better, rather than just saying, oh, we have the keys of the kingdom, what it means. The keys to opening the kingdom of God to salvation... Are keeping the law and the prophets which hang on love God and love your neighbor. That's what it's all about. And that's what this book is all about, is those. So if we keep this, we'll be in the kingdom of heaven. That's the key that unlocks the opportunity that Christ has given us, is his word. And Peter was going against it and got in trouble. Uh, so we need to go with it and stay out of trouble.